Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with nonprofit and community-based organizations, trade unions, businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff and leadership and power building, and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks who want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, and organize communities for change. To find out how Dunstreet can partner with you, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Socially Democratic is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around, and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills mean you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, www.morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign and issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On this week's episode... Stephen has head over to Ireland to speak with the leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bakic. Ivana gives a wonderful recount of her journey into politics, including her work as part of Dublin's Trinity College Student Politic, and the massive strides Ireland has made on progressive issues such as same-sex marriage and abortion rights, which is very topical given the state of US politics today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you like the show, please be sure to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify and be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. For updates, follow us at Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And that's enough of me talking. Let's get back to Stephen. We are taping this one on a Friday um, in, uh, but not in Australia. I am in uh, Dublin City in County Dublin in the Republic of Ireland. Um, And I'm joined uh, on today's podcast by the parliamentary leader of the Labour Party, Ivana Bacic Falcher, and uh, welcome to Socially Democratic. Garamagut, Stephen. That's thank you in Irish. I, uh, um, it's great to be back in Ireland. It's been a while since I've been here. Um, and I was watching your by-election campaign from, from afar, um, your successful by-election campaign, obviously. Um, and, uh, you're now the leader of the Labour Party. It's been quite a, a, a journey over the course of the last couple of uh, years since you first put your hand up for the seat of Dublin Bay South. Uh-huh. Yes, it has been a very uh, uh, interesting and eventful journey. But first of all, it's a real pleasure to uh, be on this podcast with you and uh, to be engaging with an Australian audience. And of course, we've watched and listened 
avidly to the to the recent Australian election results and we're so excited here in the Irish Labour Party to see Australian Labour winning and to see Albanese as Prime Minister of Australia so it's a real really heartening uh, sign for us and you know we're gr- very grateful to you Stephen for the engagement here as well and of course we have a very strong connection with Australian Labour through Dermot Ryan who ran my by-election campaign last summer here in Dublin Bay South and who also now is our strategic advisor to the party but I suppose yeah as you say it's been eventful for me personally it's actually only a year ago that I um that the by-election uh came up it was in fact in April 2021 that uh, an outgoing member of, of our part of our Oireachtas our parliament resigned uh, leaving a vacancy in my constituency I hadn't previously had the opportunity to stand as a candidate in my own constituency uh, for Labour um but I had served of course as a Labour Party senator for many years and so I was delighted to have the opportunity to run for election and Dermot Ryan stepped in as my director of elections and we did indeed run a a by-election campaign that proved against the odds it must be said and against most predictions proved successful and uh, and I was really honoured to be elected and then subsequently in March of this year to become leader of the Labour Party following the resignation of our outgoing leader Alan Kelly so it has been eventful but I suppose there was a lot of groundwork went into it and my favourite headline last summer when I was elected was overnight success after 30 years so that sums up what for many women is the the reality which is Mm. it does take years of persistence and perseverance before a breakthrough can be made I've got a lot of questions I want to ask you about the by-election and uh, your um, your ascension to the leadership but I I, I want to go back to the start if we can sure Um, your surname uh, Bacic not the most famous of Irish surnames going around, is it? I feel like there's a story there that might involve some form of migration from another place that is in Ireland. Yes, that's quite right. And the name Batchik is in, is very well known, in fact, in Waterford, because in 1946, my grandfather, Charles Batchik, immigrated to Ireland with his young family, including my father, who was then just a child. Um, my, they had come from what was then Czechoslovakia. Uh, my grandfather had been a glass manufacturer in Bohemia, in the south of Czechoslovakia, before the war, before the Second World War. He was in the Czech resistance, was imprisoned by the Nazis during the war, but then saw what was going to happen in 1945-46 at the end of the war with the communist takeover of Czechoslovakia and uh, a very shameful part of Czech history is that the communists when they came in imprisoned alongside Nazi collaborators they imprisoned members of the Czech resistance who they had saw as posing a threat and of course they were also uh, very punitive towards anyone who had owned factories or been involved in um, in manufacturing in, in the way my grandpa had so he came to Ireland because it was a neutral country and because he had some links here with glass uh, uh, importers in Ireland and he re-established Waterford Glass or Waterford Crystal after the war. This had been a, a previous glass manufacturer in Waterford um, set up by uh, Waterford Brothers called the Penroses in the 18th century. Uh, it had been closed for about 100 years and Grandpa re-established it and it went on to become a huge employer in Waterford, obviously a worldwide mm. brand, huge success in the 1970s and 1980s in America and employing over 3,000 people in Waterford, the biggest employer in, in the county. 
uh, for many, many years. So, uh, so you know, Grandpa's story is the story of an immigrant success. It's the story of the sort of contribution that migrant communities make. And it's a story that's very familiar, I know, to Australians because, you know, uh, uh, where I, when I've been in us, and I was delighted to be in, in Sydney uh, and indeed in Cairns in Queensland uh, in 2018, visiting and doing some work. And uh, just the, the number of immigrant success stories there, of course, is, is well known. But in Ireland, perhaps less so, where we would have had very little inward migration for a long time and where, in fact, most of our history is about emigration, particularly in the 40s and 50s and mid-20th century. So, um, so it's a great story. And I'm delighted to say that just this year, 2022, my grandpa was honoured formally with Waterford City Council naming a square, a plaza in the city centre after him. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was great. Growing up um, in, uh, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in London. We moved around a lot. We, I grew. I did all my national schooling in Cork, and then we moved to Dublin when I was fourteen. So, growing up in the People's Republic of Cork, yes, um, the real capital. That's right. Did uh, was it a political household at all? My mum is very political. She's a strong feminist and she uh, joined the Labour Party when she and my dad moved back from London to Cork. Um, And uh, really that, I suppose, bucked the trend. Her family history was Fianna Fáil, um, some Fianna Gael, um, in the usual way of Irish families with some civil war split. But and she's a Murphy herself from County Clare. So she grew up in Kilkee, but uh, she was very taken with the writings of James Connolly. She was very influenced when she and my dad were in London in their 20s. They were very influenced by feminist and socialist movements there. And so her politics really have inspired me. And we grew up, I grew up as one of two girls and two boys in what was a, what was a very feminist household in which we were all very equal. So, uh, so I suppose that's what drove me then when I went to college to Trinity in the, 80, in the 1980s, Trinity College Dublin, to join the Labour Society there. Um, and to get very involved in socialist and feminist politics. Can you think of any moments in your childhood that shaped the values that you live by today? Specific moments that sort of where you were confronted by a challenge um, or, or you saw some type of leadership maybe from your parents or people in your community that you went, okay, that's sort of... That's something that I think I, I want to I, I want to live by. That's a career that I want to belong to. Was there any of those moments in your childhood that did that? Yeah, there's one that really stands out because we were very much an equal opportunities household, but we were also a household that had moved from London to West Cork, rural Cork, in the 1970s. So we were blow-ins. We didn't really fit in, and I was at a very conservative, very ordinary Catholic school, local school, um, in which there were very strict gendered lines. And I have a very vivid memory of sitting in class, probably about eight or nine. Um, with all the other girls in my class um, being told we had to concentrate on our sewing, something I have always been terrible at, uh, <laughs> while the boys were outside playing football. So that to me was a real a real moment, you know, just that vivid memory of the injustice and the unfairness and this being absolutely demarcated on the grounds of gender. You know, obviously I wouldn't have articulated like that then, mm. but what I felt was just because I'm a girl, I shouldn't have to sit in and sew. And especially because it was such a contrast to our household, which was so equal, where my brothers are, in fact, better cooks than I am, I must say. Uh, you know, it, it was that contrast. So my mum's leadership and contrasted with the very, very, you know, traditional norms that were existed, that were in place in the school. I think that was a real, really formative moment, if you like. But it was, you know, I suppose symptomatic of the way in which the culture was in a, in a small Catholic rural school at the time. That would have been absolutely the norm across the country then. Did you do anything about that at that moment then? Or when was the moment when you first stood up? 
Well, I didn't then because I, I didn't feel, I, I suppose, you know, at that age when, you know, one doesn't feel very powerful at all in school. My mum did take myself and my sister out of school and, and, and gave us home tuition for a year, which again was very formative because we just didn't really fit in in the school. And I did then win a scholarship to a, a school in Dublin, an all-girls school in Dublin that's uh, well known for, you know, really bringing on girls academically. Um, but I remember in that school really taking a stand in 1983, there was a very again a very formative moment it was the referendum on uh, on abortion uh, um, in fact it was a referendum to put into our constitution um, a protection a recognition of the right to life of the unborn an extraordinary amendment which unfortunately was passed in 1983 and which had the effect of of stopping any woman in Ireland having an abortion for decades. It was a, an amendment that cast a shadow over my own, my generation of women uh, and has on, was only just repealed in 2018 in a move that made headlines around the world. But that 1983 referendum was bitter, it was divisive. I was still in school, I was too young to vote, obviously, but my mum was out campaigning against it, uh, along with the very small feminist movement in Ireland. And I remember in, in even in a liberal Dublin girls' school, for me to speak against that amendment was really taking a stand and you know and being I was surprised by the level of of uh, support for the referendum the level of almost uh, unquestioning support for the inclusion of a protection of the right to life for the unborn that there was no questioning that this was going to diminish women's rights and diminish women's value the value of women's lives you know there was really very little understanding of it Mary Robinson then a young senator and law lecturer spoke out strongly against the, the amendment but it was passed by a big majority and for a long time the eighth, the eighth amendment as it came to be known represented the, the majority view in ireland a view that unborn life had to be protected and that even at the cost of women's lives and it really took unfortunately a series of very tragic cases uh, including cases in which women died like the case of savita halapanavar in 2012 it took a series of those cases and a long campaign by many of us before we saw the referendum repealed uh, the amendment repealed and uh, and legislation allowing women to have abortion here you attended as you mentioned before you attended trinity college um uh, which is if anyone gets the chance to walk around that campus you literally feel smarter just walking around there (laughs) that's true it is a beautiful campus it has that effect it really does unfortunately it doesn't make me smarter but i certainly (laughs) felt smarter um uh, and a lot of our uh, listeners back home and including myself have their entry point into political activism was through campus politics um, you yourself got involved in campus politics. Why did you do that? Was it an issue? Was it people? What brought you into that kind of world? Well, I suppose inspired by my mum, I would have been very much leaning towards Labour and, and socialist societies, but um, but in particular towards feminism and towards the women's group. And when I came to Trinity in 1985, I mean, the excitement of walking under the front arch, as it's known, and any of your listeners who have the chance to come to Dublin, it is, it is a, a, a real destination. I think for pretty much anyone who visits Dublin is to come under the front arch of Trinity, walk into the beautiful cobbled front square with all the amazingly historic buildings around and just have a look around, see the famous Book of Kells, of course. So it was that experience of coming into Trinity in in 1985 in what was, you know, a very conservative, very Catholic-dominated context, a society where, you know, the norms were, were sort of unquestioned everywhere else, to come into Trinity where people could be openly gay, where women and men would talk as equals about 
ideas around contracep- contraception was still illegal, a criminal offence uh, to use con- to to sell or buy contraception at that time. And yet, in, on this campus, it was this bastion of liberalism, you know, this little oasis. So it was a it was a really um, fantastic time to be a student and in Trinity. And uh, and I suppose I just then gravitated towards the Labour Society, the Socialist Society, and the Students Union and the Women's Group. And in my final year, then I ran for president of the Students Union and was elected and um and that again was at a very very uh, dramatic time politically because the student movement then was in the sort of the eye of the storm on abortion rights in Ireland and we had seen previ- in previous years students unions being targeted because we were still students unions were giving women information about where to access abortion in England the, the battle lines had, had moved on and abortion had been outlawed of course uh, but um, in a in a judgment following from the Eighth Amendment, a judgment in eighty five, uh, a court had ruled that even to give a phone number of an abortion of an English abortion clinic to a woman in Ireland was to was to be a breach of the constitutional rights of the unborn. And again, this may seem extraordinary to listeners from other countries or even to young listeners in Ireland, mm. uh, but it was the reality that abortion information then became outlawed. So the battle moved to could you give a phone number? And we used to go down the street as Trinity students chanting this number, 67947000. I still know it off by heart. And it was the number of our underground helpline, which would give the women, women in crisis pregnancy the phone number of the clinic in England where they could travel to get an abortion if they were able to make the arrangement and had the wherewithal to travel. And it was just you know looking back and extraordinary that this was these were the lengths we had to go to so we knew when i was elected president of the students union this was 1989 by then matters had come to a head the women's helplines had all closed down they'd been taken there'd been a series of court cases closing them down students unions were the only organizations courageous enough and i suppose bold enough Mm. to continue to openly provide this information so we provided it uh for me as president and the three other officers we were therefore the people who were targeted and we were taken to court and threatened with prison by a group calling itself SPUC S-P-U-C Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child sounds like a made up entity but their membership and their supporters were among the most powerful people in the country and they took us to court and uh, we were told by our lawyer Mary Robinson to pack our bags because we'd be going to prison uh, and it was a hugely sort of seismic moment for student politics, for women's politics and for women's rights in Ireland, because we said we're, we're going to take the chance. We're going to stand up. We're not going to stop giving this information because by then I had become conscious of just how important it was and just what a need there was out there. Because every day of the week, sitting in my little office in, in Front Square in Trinity, I was getting phone calls from women all over the country who were desperate for a phone number in England of a clinic. Mm. And you know, women were calling in off the street because Trinity is very accessible. And uh, we were just absolutely blown away. As, as young, I was only 21, young students, we were blown away by the level of need out there and the level of desperation that this our, you know, arcane law was creating. And, uh, and these people who were closing down all these helplines were just creating this this utter anguish and despair among so many women and, and girls from all over Ireland so it was this these were the weeks and months I suppose that uh, that have absolutely shaped my politics and motivated me to stay involved for as long as I have because I'll just never forget those women and those girls and uh, so I'm really proud of the stand we took as students standing up to them saying we'll go to prison if it takes that in the end there was a change of judge 
uh, the judge we had expected to get was, was uh, replaced and we didn't get sent to prison. Mary Robinson's brilliant legal argument based on European uh, community, European law um, uh, saw our case being referred to the European Court of Justice. Uh, the legal proceedings went on then for many years. We were declared bankrupt in the course of them. Um, but ultimately, you know, as the as the years passed and as unfortunately more hard cases like the X case in 92, like the case of Savita I've mentioned, those cases helped to shift public opinion along, I think, with the stance we took and the, and the stance taken by pro-choice activists and, and public opinion changed to the point where we were able to move to incrementally first to legalise abortion in very limited circumstances and then ultimately to repeal the Eighth Amendment in 2018. But it took a long time to get to the point where we have a modern European abortion law in Ireland. As a 21-year-old student leader, uh, in the heat of this campaign, being threatened with jail time, you know, you could have easily have just said, you know what, I'm just going to weigh up my options here and maybe jail time isn't, you know, something I want to consider. Where did you get the courage to push through and actually stare down this, this opposition and do this work? Well, it was... It was certainly not easy and we were petrified because the women's prison in Dublin was a brutal place and we had a former woman, a woman who had been in there, had come in to talk to myself and the other woman. We had four student union officers threatened with prison from Trinity, um, two men and two women, and myself and the other woman, and the other woman, Grania Murphy, had been advised that this was going to be really tough if we did go to prison because the conditions were so bad at the time. There's since been a, a, a better uh, prison built for women, and I must say I've campaigned on penal reform all my life since. But uh, so we were petrified. I suppose what gave me and the others the courage was the solidarity we had from our student body and actually from staff and academics on the Trinity campus. And again, just to emphasise what a unique place Trinity was at the time in, a, in this very conservative country, what was then a very, very conservative country, to, to, have, to know that there was a community behind us was a real strength and a real source of strength. For me also, it, it really helped that my family were supportive. My mum, as I said, is a feminist. My dad is very uh, f- feminist too. And so, uh, so that, was, that made it easier because you know, we were, my parents were getting calls to the house. Batchik is an easy name to find in the phone book or when the phone books existed. And they used to get calls saying, is this the abortion clinic and abusive calls and so on. So it, so it wouldn't have been easy had I not had that support. And not all of us in the student movement had that level of support. And many people came from families where there would have been deeply held anti-abortion views. So so it, it did make, it, yeah, it was a difficult time. It was very fraught. But we were also very young and very, very motivated and very principled. And we'd had this very, very harrowing experience of having women and girls contact us, particularly myself and Grania. And so we were very conscious of the need out there and the need to change the law. So as I say, that, I suppose, stayed with us and that was the main driving force, but also the solidarity from the students. You, um, you lectured at Trinity for a period of time, is that, is that right? I lectured at Trinity for a long time, yes. I moved to London after the student union days for a few years and then came back and, uh, and qualified as a barrister in London and came back to Dublin, qual- uh, practised as a barrister for many years, cr- mostly criminal law, and also taught criminal law and criminology and feminist theory of law in Trinity for over 20 years. Um, and, um, and indeed taught part-time after I was elected to the Senate here in 07. So... 
I've had a long association with Trinity and, you know, over the years as Ireland has become a much more, um, much more diverse, a much more pluralist, a much more liberal society. Uh, and as we've seen marriage equality legalised by referendum in 2015 and then abortion in 2018, you know, Ireland has really changed and, our, and it's been wonderful to be part of that process. So the Trinity is no longer that oasis of liberalism, you know, it's, it's just another university and that's exactly as it should be. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still, even though I'm no longer teaching in Trinity, I still get a great kick out just seeing students every year coming in and just getting that same um sense of mind you know mind broadening of um of just the experience of of campus life which is brilliant for for students in any campus anywhere around the world i have to say in sydney and you know, i was delighted to spend a bit of time in the university of sydney the same sort of feeling there you know so so it's great to see but yeah ireland has changed hugely and we've changed much more rapidly but later probably than other european or indeed australian um, um, societies um, but to the point where we are now being held up as a bastion you know that we have gone in a different direction where you're seeing for example in the US uh, Roe v Wade under threat abortion rights threatened a real backlash against feminism in Ireland happily you know we are at a point where feminist and um, I suppose human rights values and progressive values are still are still to the fore and in fact have gained momentum in recent years so we haven't seen that backward or regressive movement that has happened in other countries. So you spent a number of years practicing the law, yes. but then you decided to get into the business of making laws. Why did you want to, when I mean, you first ran for the upper house, the Senate, um, what was the motivation to do that? Well, I was really motivated because um, uniquely Trini uh, Ireland has a um, has a, a two houses of Parliament: the Dáil, which is the lower house, the um, the Congress, if you like, which rep where uh, members are are elected to represent geographic constituencies. So I'm now a member of the Dáil, representing my local area in Dublin. Uh, but uh, there's also an upper house, the Senate or Shannad, and that has a series is made up of of senators elected on vocational panels. And uniquely, we have two panels which represent university graduates. One panel of three senators from Trinity graduates and one panel of three senators from the much larger National University of Ireland um, uh, graduates pool. Um, it's a historic uh, entity. It was constructed, it was devised in 1937 uh, in order to ensure representation from the, what was then, of course, the Protestant minority. And those were in the days when, uh, when only Protestants went to Trinity and indeed the Catholic Church banned Catholics from going to Trinity unless they had a dispensation from their local bishop. Uh, for many years, so uh, so that's the the history of the of the uh, the different parliamentary. Um systems but I suppose when I came back to, to Dublin from London I was conscious that the Senate and particularly the three Trinity seats had a long tradition of having very liberal very feminist and uh, radical representatives elected so Mary Robinson who had represented us in court as a barrister was also a senator for Trinity David Norris remains a, a certain the longest serving senator and he's a, a great friend and colleague and he had come to the fore through gay rights activism and also as a Trinity lecturer in English and a James Joyce expert and he was elected to the Senate for the first time in the 80s and remains a senator so I was I really loved the idea of being part of that uh, of that group that has really helped to make waves to try and change Irish society for the better to make it more liberal to be and uh, so that's why I start I ran and I ran a number of times before I was elected I was first elected in 2007 to the Shannon for the Trinity seat and I suppose it was also just because that was the, I had such a strong association in Trinity. I was teaching there by then and I'd had this, the days as a student activist. It made sense. We did a podcast um, 
Oh, last year, I think, because of COVID, I've lost track of all the years now. We but, all have, I know. Um, but it was uh, it's with uh, your general secretary, Billy Sparks, and so I just referenced that for folks that want to go back and have a listen to that episode because Billy talks about the context of the the, the formation of the, the Labor Party in Ireland and its place within the political spectrum. Um, let's talk about the the, the by election for Dublin Bay South that you ran. Um, you were an outsider going into that race. It was a pretty, I would say it's a Melbourne Cup field. I mean, people, <laughs> like, the Irish people probably do follow that race, but there was a lot of people running in that race. Um, and I, I'm, I'm right in assuming that the expectations for the party in terms of your success would have been seen as an outsider. Yes, uh, very much so. That's yeah, an right. understatement. Okay. The, our satirical, one of our satirical radio programs said you'd have to be absolutely crazy to think that Ivana has any chance. That was when the by-election was first declared. Labour were doing very poorly in the polls at a national level and uh, it, was going, it was seen that this was, by-election was going to be a contest between the main government party, Fine Gael, and the main opposition party, Sinn Féin, and that everyone else was going to be sidelined. But, you know, what we showed with a very dynamic campaign, a great campaign, and you know, but also a campaign run under COVID restrictions, so it wasn't an easy campaign, uh, because this was still, you know, just, as you say, COVID time. This was July, June, July 2021. So COVID rates were high. It was before vaccination had really taken off. So, uh, so you know, it was a very dynamic campaign, however, and we showed that there was a clear appetite for an alternative voice of constructive, positive centre-left change, that messaging that we put and that energy we brought to the campaign carved out this other space and Fine Gael and Sinn Féin ended up being the parties that were sidelined actually and and Labour, we came through with a Labour vote that actually was a record vote for us, 30% first preferences. For the Australian audiences or the non-Irish audiences listening here, I mean, if they've had any kind of tangential understanding of Irish politics, obviously they've seen the two, I guess I would say three major parties historically, obviously Fine Fáil, Fine Gael and the Labour Party. But now Sinn Féin uh, are the largest party in the in the dolls, is that right? No, they're the largest opposition. Right. Yeah, yeah. So they picked up a lot of seats, and Labor's currently got ten, uh, seven, seven. seven in the in the doll. Where does where does where does where is Sinn Féin getting all these votes from? That's kind of what we want to get a sense of. Where has this success come from? Because this is only recent, right? There's, there's, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, no one would have thought Sinn Féin as being the largest opposition party in the in the, in the republic, anyway. That's right. It's been a very uh, recent phenomenon. So I suppose traditionally, or at least uh, you know, certainly in the latter half of the twentieth century, they were always seen as two and a half parties dominating Irish politics. The two main parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, arising out of the civil war split between the pro and anti-treaty sides, uh, but with very little to distinguish them in terms of ideology. They would be centre-right broadly. Fine Gael seen more perhaps as the party of bigger business, of more perhaps more socially liberal, but more economically neoliberal or cons- even conservative. Fianna Fáil being more of a party that uh, had some some uh, real support among trade unionists, but uh, was a sm- party of perhaps um, you know uh, more rural areas. And things. I mean, and these things ebbed and flowed, of course. And then Labour being the small a smaller party, hence the two and a half party tag, uh, a smaller party that. Uh, um, we, we went into but the, a party that was serious about delivering change, a party, of course, that is the political wing of the trade union movement and grew out of that, the party of James Connolly originally. So, And we are, in fact, the oldest political party in the state, 110 years old, uh, because so we predate the Civil War split. Uh, but uh, that two and a half party structure began to fracture. And in recent years, as you say, things have really changed uh, to the point where in 26, it, the economic crash, um, Labour went. Uh, Labour in 2011, uh, following the um, 
the, the dreadful crash and the bank bailout, Labour went into government as a coalition partner with Fine Gael. Uh, we then had 37 seats and uh, in 2016, following a very difficult period in government, obviously, uh, we lost we lost most, most of those seats. And then in the 2016 election, Fine Gael could only govern as a majority as a minority government propped up by Fianna Fáil from opposition. This was a historic development, the two civil war parties coming together in this way. And then an even more dramatic shift in 2020 for the general election and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil then going into government together in coalition. And this has been a seismic shift because the two civil war parties have come together. They still didn't have enough numbers to form a government without the Green Party, which has also come in. So we now have a three-party coalition uh, as a result of 2020. But what really brought that about was that in tw- that 2020, February 2020 election, just before COVID, um, what brought about the dip in, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael both dipped significantly and Sinn Féin took the benefit of that and won 37 seats. This, this is in a, in a 160-seat parliament. But Sinn Féin's success was utterly unpredicted, even by them. And the interesting thing is that they did not run enough candidates to be able to capitalise on the vote share. And in fact, when one looks back, they had a very poor local elections in 2019, did poorly in by-elections that year also, uh, did poorly in presidential election. And yet in February 2020, due to a series of factors that are still being analysed, they um, they uh, uh, were able to gain a, a much bigger vote share than ever previously, and a vote share that in opinion polls since then they've held on to. So they're now the most popular, according to the most recent polls, the most popular party in the state. So I think the you know as far as we can tell, they are they are the current recipients of a real sense of public frustration, even anger, discontent um, at government. Government, failed government policies, particularly on housing. So this is the huge burning issue currently, is that couples and families and individuals who can't afford to buy uh, and who are also facing unaffordable rent hikes, evictions. I mean, I'm hearing it every day in my own constituency. Uh, so housing is the big issue. And even people who are themselves comfortable, worried that the children will never be able to afford houses. I know that this is an issue that's not unique to Ireland. I heard it in Sydney in 2018. I was hearing it. Uh, so I know there are many, many countries where this is an issue. But in Ireland in particular, we've seen a, t- a total failure of uh, in building of public of homes, uh, social and affordable homes, and that has had a knock-on effect then on supply. So there's a real shortage of supply of houses and homes and a real frustration and a real desire for change. And Sinn Féin have been very much the, uh, I suppose, you know, the party to which people have gravitated towards with that, and they're really pushing a message of change. I mean, what we say in Labour, of course, is that, you know, that message of change is built on a somewhat empty rhetoric. Sinn Féin have never been in government in this jurisdiction. Uh, their government record in Northern Ireland is not stellar you know, in terms of delivering public services and there's some areas where their political views and positions to us are at odds with the left-wing approach. So for example they oppose a, po- a property tax uh, and a residential property tax is one of the very few taxes on assets that have really been successful in, generation, in generating a redistribution of wealth and to me as a socialist it's a given that a left-wing party should should favour and support that form of taxation. Sinn Féin do not. And nor have they been uh, clear in their support for carbon tax. So for us, for me as a green-red or a red-green, an environmental socialist, you know, again, that's at odds with 
with my ideology. My ideal is to see a Labour Green government, a Labour Social Democratic government that is uh, that is also a green and environmental government. And that's where I want to see our politics move. Um, and you know, I think Sinn Fein have a have a you know, there's a very different position. It's a much more populist sort of rhetoric that we see. But it's certainly been successful because um, in certainly in opinion polls since 2020 because there is such frustration. And now with the cost of living crisis as we come through COVID, you know, with rising inflation rates, the knock-on effect of the horrific war on Ukraine uh, that Russia is waging, you know, we're seeing that discontent and that anger and frustration really boiling up more and more, and it des- this desire for change. Because Fine Gael, the reality is, the main, you know, Fine Gael, as the main, I suppose, main government party, have now been in government for a very long time since 2011, and there is a real need to see a change. And you know, we in Labour are putting forward a message of change, but it's a constructive message, a positive change trying to be solid and real and serious about how we deliver it and how in particular we can fund the huge investment in housing and in healthcare, hospitals and schools that we need to see. Really interesting insight from the most recent Australian federal election was the issue of cost of living that you just mentioned before. Mm. Um, Normally we would think that that would be a conservative positive frame for them to talk about and something that we as a social democratic party would probably try and avoid. But a lot of the research that was coming through during the campaign was the more that we did talk about cost of living and what Labor's um, solutions were to address that, that it was actually uh, voters favoured Labor on the issue of cost of living over the the Liberals, the Conservative Party. I mean, is that, is that a space that you think that the Labor Party can create um, some distinction between both Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, as well as Sinn Féin, in saying we can address these issues for for working people here in Ireland. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've been um, running a campaign on Ireland needs a pay rise for the last few months because what's clear to us is that the most effective way to tackle the cost of living crisis is to ensure that people see an increase in their take-home pay. Uh, It's one thing to try to tweak the cost of um, the cost of fuel, the cost of energy, the cost of food. And that has to be done in a targeted way by government, clearly. But the most effective and sustainable way to, to, to support people through this crisis is to ensure that incomes actually increase, that take-home pay levels increase. So we've been calling, for example, for public sector pay talks to uh, be informed by that because, you know, with an 8% inflation rate, inflation running at 8%, uh, we need to see income incomes rise then commensurately with that. Currently there's a public sector pay agreement that see, that will see uh, workers in the public sector getting uh, 1% pay, pay rise this year. But that amounts really to a decrease in wages of course. And what I'm hearing, I hear it every day, I heard it yesterday when I'm canvassing in, in my own constituency, is people saying, I'm on a good income, I'm in a good job, but my income is no longer enough to meet the cost of childcare, the cost of my rent, the cost of putting petrol in my car, uh, the cost of food. So these are the real issues and um, we've seen some really devastating reports uh, in economic and social research institute reports saying that one third of households are in fuel poverty that they can't afford uh, they can't afford rising energy and fuel prices and um, and you know this obviously is going to have a, a really difficult effect particularly as we move into the winter and particularly as households face back to school costs so again there's a real fear real concern about that and we've been calling for a mini budget for over 1 billion euros worth of targeted measures to tackle this but also for government to look at the hidden costs what the trade unions are calling the social wage, mm. the really high cost of childcare in Ireland, the really high cost of healthcare, bringing your child to the to the doctor, costs which in many other European countries are either totally met or or subsidised by the state. I mean, in our, here in Dublin, 
crash, pla- a crash place for a child is €1,000 a month mm. for one child. So it's a second mortgage if you have two or three children. And that's what's really, really squeezing people now. Last question, because I know you've got to run. Um, and this is a question I think that's more probably for the Irish diaspora listening to the show. Um, they're always interested in the prospect of United Ireland. And it seems like we're getting closer to that. I know my late father said that um, his hope before he died was to see United Ireland. I never did get to see that, but it feels like it's getting closer now, something with the demographic changes in the north. But to have a United Ireland, it requires both sides of the border to agree to it. What's Labour's position on, on, on that and how would you extend, the, I guess, the hand of friendship and welcome to your northern, northern brothers and sisters into this 32-county Irish Republic? Well, I like your father, and I'm sorry, he, I'm sorry to hear he did, he's, he's no longer with us, but you know, like him, I would, I would also like to see United Ireland in my lifetime. And, uh, and in fact, I think you know, that's an aspiration that many, many of us have. But we in Labour have been very clear that it has to be, that any steps towards that unification uh, would have to be taken in a very uh, sensitive way and in a way that is entirely consistent with the spirit of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement uh, and that is based on the principles of consent. So I set out Labour's position for your Irish diaspora in an Irish Times editorial um, at the end of April in which I pointed out that we would have to see, I think, the sort of groundwork laid in advance of running any referendum on unity across the island. We'd have to see the careful groundwork laid that we saw laid in the marriage equality and abortion referendums here. And that would require the setting up, in my view, of an all-island citizens' assembly. So in other words, a deliberative democracy process where people would be um where citizens would be able to hear the arguments in a calm and dispassionate way outside of the heat of the sort of part political party political uh, forums and would be able to make a view then on whether or not we should have a referendum. And in order to set up that citizens' assembly, we'd first have to build consent both in the Stormont Assembly in Northern Ireland and here in Ardall and Shannon. And I think that it's that sort of careful groundwork where first you bring the political parties on side and secondly then you create the conditions for a, a deliberative democracy process You'd have to do all of that before I think you could contemplate running a unity referendum. And of course, you know, it might well be that the Citizens' Assembly wouldn't recommend that referendum, but at least we'd know why. We'd be able, I think, in that way then to establish more clarity as to what what the real consensual view is. You, it, it's a, it's a re, I, I was involved in the Constitutional Convention, which was the forerunner of our Citizens' Assembly on the marriage equality question. It was really interesting to me to be part of that process, to see people coming to a common view from perhaps very different positions, but to listen to the evidence to, and, and to do this in this thoughtful and objective way. So I think that's the sort of process that it will take. And I think that will take some, that will clearly take some years. And I think it's interesting to see that even those who are most who were most vocal on what they call a border pole in Sinn Féin have been much more measured more recently in their commentary. And I think now there's an understanding that this will take some time. Um, I mean, I was up in Belfast canvassing uh, for progressive SDLP candidates in the elections and again you know what really struck me uh, and I think most people uh, who were involved in the process was you know people there the, the real concerns for most people in that election were the bread and butter issues the cost of living crisis the effect of the war in Ukraine you know the rental and housing and education and childcare and all of the same issues that we in Dublin or in Cork or in Limerick or, or in Galway are, are, uh, are also experiencing so you know with, with the Stormont Assembly 
um, now in a sort of this this frozen situation and no functioning executive. Clearly, people, you know, the democratic wishes of people are not who voted in these stormy elections are not being respected. And it's, you know, the DUP have behaved so so badly, in my view, uh, on this. And indeed, the British government now in undermining international law in this utterly delusional pro- approach to the protocol. We're seeing, unfortunately, the people of Northern Ireland suffering, caught in the middle of this sort of internal Tory party and DUP um, power games. So, so we're at a very, very difficult position in um, in North-South relations, in East-West relations between the two islands, and it's a time for really, um, for, for really an emphasis from all of us in opposition in government, an emphasis on the need to re-engage in constructive negotiation. We've been calling on Britain to re-engage with the EU, not to proceed with the protocol legislation that they're proposing which would undermine the protocol so utterly, um, but to go back and re-engage with the EU and in a real and constructive way. But unfortunately, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss don't seem to be minded to do that. So uh, it'll be a case. So yeah, the, you know, the, the question of reunification, that's, I suppose, a more um, for now, um, is not the most pressing issue. The most pressing issue is trying to get the Stormont Assembly and the executive, the Northern Ireland executive, back functioning and to ensure that that you know, the effects of Brexit are not calamitous for people in Northern Ireland and here in Ireland too. Uh, Ivana, it's been wonderful to sit down with you and, uh, and, and, and chat. I wish we had more time, but we wish both you and your leadership of the party the best of luck going forward. I know the elections aren't for a while away, but also to the rest of the party and the movement here in Ireland. Um, best of luck with all of the work that you guys are doing, and we hope to see uh, a strong... Uh, and Progressive Labour Party successful in the next round of elections. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. And uh, a big shout out to all the listeners in Australia. And I hope at some point we'll see Labour governments in both our countries. I'm going to wish. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday.